Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the second of our summer special episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. This series will shine a light on how initiatives such as psychological safety, empathetic leadership, job crafting, data-driven decision-making, and a human-centric approach can drive innovation, creativity, inclusion, and ultimately success in our organizations during these turbulent times. The COVID-19 crisis is testing our political leaders like they've never been tested before. Leaders that appear to score high on narcissism and low on empathy are failing dismally. It's interesting that those political leaders, especially female leaders, who combine competence, transparency and empathy, and are using data and science to inform their decision-making, appear to be performing much better. The brilliant Tomas Chamorro Premusic is my guest on this week's episode of the podcast. In a recent article for HR Examiner, Tomas shared his belief that the crisis will accelerate the retirement of outdated leadership profiles and highlight the need for competence, intelligence, integrity, and empathy. Tomas is an international authority in psychological profiling, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. He is the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group and professor of business psychology at both University College London and Columbia University. Tomas is a prolific writer and his articles in publications like HBR, Forbes, and Fast Company regularly feature in my monthly roundup of the best HR and people analytics articles. Tomas has also written 10 books, including his most recent, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? and is one of the most knowledgeable, interesting, and engaging people in our field. I know you will enjoy listening as we discuss the role of leadership in times of crisis and change. In our conversation, Thomas and I also discuss why digital transformation is primarily about people and not technology, and what this actually means for leaders, HR, and employees. We talk about why skills is a new currency and why learning is paramount. We look at how people analytics can be integrated into other fields such as diversity and inclusion. And we also look on how to stay on the right side of creepy with regards to AI and analytics. And finally, as we do with all our guests on this particular series, we look at what HR needs to do to drive more value. This episode is a must listen for anyone interested in ethical and empathetic leadership and the role of HR and how both will need to evolve as the use of data, analytics and digital technologies become widespread in our organisations. So that's business leaders, CHROs and anyone in a people analytics, HR business partner or talent acquisition role. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Thomas Chamorro Premusic, Chief Ta- Talent Scientist at Manpower Group to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Thomas. It's great to see you again. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Can you provide listeners with a quick introduction to your background and myriad roles? Sure. So I'm an organizational psychologist, and my focus is really on helping organizations apply science and technology to improve their understanding and also their ability to predict human behavior at work. Um, For the past couple of years, I spent most of my time uh, in my current role at Manpower Group, which is Chief Talent Scientist, where I basically oversee a lot of our strategic innovations initiatives around datifying the vast majority of the people we place in jobs every year. There's about 4 million people that we're trying to put through uh, AI analytics and assessments so that we can basically match them to better jobs. And in my spare time, which is increasingly, you know, uh, not much, not that much, uh, I do a little bit of teaching at Columbia and UCL, and I'm involved in a couple of uh, startups that I co-founded and advising some other firms, basically, that creates 
create tools for understanding and predicting behavior at work. Wow. And some, somehow in all that time, you find, find time to be an absolutely prolific writer as well. Yes, that's right. Usually very early in the mornings, you know, before the kids um, um, wake up or uh, start to um, inculcate their needs on, on me. And so I, I wake up early and I try to spend an hour in the mornings trying to write, which I find, you know, like a very helpful way to actually understand what you're thinking on different uh, topics and issues, you know, so when you write something, you understand it better. And, you know, it's fair to say also that one of my uh, passions has been over the past decade or so to try to uh, evangelize and educate the wider public around science-based or evidence-based HR and talent practices. So I think it's important to reach to a broader audience. Well, carry on doing it because you're doing a fantastic job. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the articles that you've been writing recently, I think, as we go through our discussion. Obviously, we're living in a world of COVID-19 and we've been hearing quite a lot about how it is acting as an accelerant to digital transformation and the future of work. You know, when we spoke recently, we discussed the contrary to popular, that contrary to popular belief, digital transformation is less about technology and more about people. So I thought it'd be nice to explore that, what it means for leaders and what it means for workers. So let's start with, what does that mean for leaders? I think, you know, the, the, the main uh, implication for leaders is that they need to understand that, you know, you can buy any technology you like, you just pay for it and you have it, you know, and whether you're using X, Y, or Z, um, you know, you can assess what's better. But actually, ultimately, the biggest, the biggest enabler and the biggest barrier, if it's not there, to leveraging technology um, is your people. So um, I think most organizations are struggling with their digital transformation efforts because of cultural issues. Um, what do we mean by digital transformation? I think at its core is trying to make organizations more data-driven and have a data-centric culture. That doesn't happen because you install Microsoft Teams or you outsource your IT function to India or you go into the cloud. Yeah. You need to fundamentally and systematically skill people up so that they do their job differently and they become more data centric. And that's a big, big mission for HR and talent management. And I think it's something that a lot of organizations overlook. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that, uh, well, you know, the, the, the word digital and the term digital transformation sounds very much like, you know, you get a, you, you engage uh, a firm, a consulting firm to uh, come up with a data strategy or a data architecture. And then, you know, AI happens and solves all your problems. And uh, AI, I, where it is today, can be a very helpful and very useful tool. But if it's accompanied by a dramatic or systematic change in people's mindset, if there's a great book that I always recommend called Prediction Machines by the guys from Rodman School of Business in Toronto, where they say basically AI is cheaper prediction. And the fundamental change is what happens to human judgment in a world where AI and machine learning have become so prevalent and ubiquitous. And they say judgment changes from basically what it used to be, which is more experienced and knowledge-based, to 
having the ability to know what to do with a prediction. So if, if leaders can structure the problems that they face in their everyday work environments as prediction problems, then AI can help them test those hypotheses and they need to be able to act on that data. So I think, you know, what we are, again, one of the misconceptions that I see a lot in organizations is we need to find data, harness our data, accumulate as much data as possible. That's meaningless if you don't have the expertise to translate that data into insights and the culture to act on those insights afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, we, so that's kind of, we'll come back to, the, to what it means for leaders, but, but what does digital transformation mean for workers? So kind of the bottom up. From the bottom up, regardless of uh, wherever workers or employees are in their uh, in the kind of skill hierarchy and uh, whatever their profession or industries are, um, what we're seeing today is no different from what we've seen in previous industrial revolutions, which is that technology is always about doing more with less, and it always eliminates certain behaviors and replaces or automates certain tasks creating a lot more opportunities for people. But that's only if those people, if we have the ability to skill up and add value to the technology, right? So, uh, you know, a very simple example might be today, most of us don't use travel agents to book a, book a trip. There are still some human travel agents left, but what they do when you call them after you put up with a long wait on Expedia or whatever that is, is access the same software that you could have access at home and they guide you through the process or do a booking, right? So you can see in that when you automate something like the travel agent advice, there's a very marginal need for human travel agents. And I think you can, you can use that kind of a analogy or that logic for any other job, right? And ultimately we get to what will leaders do or what will HR professionals do if we're automating or if technology is taking care of a lot of the repetitive and predictable and standardized tasks that they were doing. So I guess what all this is doing is it's bringing the topics of skills of reskilling and learning really to the forefront within organizations. And I think it's fair to say we hear a lot about the, you know, skills as the new currency, you know, and everything else. I mean, what are you what what are you seeing around around this that's, that's, that's interesting? You talked about, for example, that if you're going to use data, you need to almost develop the culture. You need to certainly if in HR, you need to equip your HR business partners to actually be able to have conversations based on data. And then, as you said, you need to create the culture to, to make decisions based on it as well. And what are you seeing in those areas? So I think what I'm seeing is um, very, very fast and uh, almost brutal, but also impactful and extraordinary transformation of what talent actually means. And it's happening in front of our eyes, right? So in throughout our relatively short human history and human evolution of 200 or 300,000 years, for most of that time, uh, talent was mostly physical. If you were fast, strong, uh, had quick reflexes, maybe brave and uh, courageous, um, then you stood out from a team and from a group and maybe we'll follow you because we're better off you know, being under your wings or so. Uh, relatively recently after I think, um, you know, the French Revolution, the main kind of currency in talent, in the world of talent, became expertise and knowledge, right? So uh, that was the rise of kind of uh, the um, enlightenment and people who had, revol uh, who had basically encyclopedic knowledge in an age. Yeah. And you know, it's only until 
very, very recently that that was still the dominant paradigm. I think what we're seeing today is a transformation in the world of talent where um, intellectual capital, which means experience, expertise, hard skills, the credentials that you still advertise in your CV or your LinkedIn profile are getting devaluated very quickly because knowledge is uh, accessible by, by everyone and it's very, very quickly outdated. And, and that basically brought about the rise of psychological capital, which is the stuff that we still call soft skills, although very hard to find, right? So what the ideal worker today is somebody who has a lot of potential rather than a lot of expertise and experience. And by potential, we mean that they're curious, they're smart, they're humble, they're self-critical, they're eager to learn, and they're very, very comfortable with the idea that they will end up having to switch careers very quickly and that, you know, this six months, they're an expert in A, but maybe next year they're going to be an expert in B and, and so on. Right? So, it's, you know, I think Google at some point used the term or the metaphor, uh, we hire learning animals, uh, you know, which, which doesn't sound very nice. But I do think that to be, to be high on learnability, be a curious person and have a hungry mind is the number one uh, ingredient of talent and potential today. Yeah, it's funny, we, we had Heather McGowan on the show a few weeks ago, and she was talking about learning as your pension. Um, and certainly, I saw some research from IBM around half-life, you know, around the, the diminishing half-life of skills, and also, but also the time it takes to acquire, to close the skills gap. I think their research said something like it was like four, four days average to close the average skill gap in 2014, and that had gone up to about 35 or something like that, correct me if I'm wrong, four years later. So the gap, the skills gap's getting wider, it seems, but the, the need to 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 learn and unlearn is and, and relearn is, is is getting is getting greater as well. Yeah, exactly. And I even think we are at a point or at a stage where it's not even like you can calculate the distance or the gap between the skills you have and the ones you might need to have uh, in two years' time or in six months' time. But every day that gap emerges, and every day at every instance you have to close it. Because you have to be the ideal worker or the sought after and in demand talent or employee of today uh, is able to deal with new problems and new challenges all the time. And they know how to go about finding out about things they don't know already, right? So that requires the humility to identify knowledge gaps and having the willingness, the passion, the ambition, and the intelligence to quickly be proactive and entrepreneurial in the way you solve problems. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very, very significant change from uh, what we meant by talent 20, 30 or 50 years ago. Exciting, though. No? <laughs> I think it's very exciting. I think it's very exciting. And of course, the next step is to understand that if this is true, we, we can't equate university credentials or uh, the degree or the qualifications that you have uh, to talent. You know, we have to use data and assessment in a way we haven't done before to work out whether you really have these soft skills or not. Let's stay with skills. You know, HR is seeing a massive shift in the, in the skills that are required to be successful, both for its own evolution, but also to actually support digital transformation in their organizations. You know, what do you think the most important skills for HR professionals in a digital context? 
So in a way, they are no different from uh, the skills that you want to see in a leader or in any professional, right? Because we want them to be curious. We want them to be humble. Yeah. I think for an HR professional, is especially critical that they have the humility and self-criticism to question their intuition and, uh, you know, find out that uh, even when something isn't obvious or they don't agree with it, that might be the correct answer to a problem. You know, so humility, self-criticism, um, curiosity, learning ability. I do think, of course, that the, the typical or the prototypical or archetypical HR professional of today is more data-driven than, um, you know, their predecessors 20, 30 or 50 years ago. And of course, that still, still, which we've been saying now for some time, the, the, one of the key to having a successful HR professional is their ability to understand the business, to uh, talk strategy and understand, you know, commercial, financial, uh, general leadership aspects of the business they're in. And, I, and whenever I'm asked this question that I don't like very much, but it's like, what is the number one skill or uh, aspect of talent or the most important quality that an HR director can have? My answer is still the same, which is their ability to co-opt the CEO and their ability to actually get by. And so, you know, political skills and influence, I know you guys have talked about this a lot in your model of uh, people analytics, is still very, very important. Maybe if the field evolves a lot, we will focus less on style and more on substance in the future. But today, if you're the most knowledgeable HR person in the world, but you don't have EQ, influence skills or political skills, uh, you won't have any impact. And I think there are some great HR professionals out there that aren't amazing intellectually or from an expertise standpoint, but they know how to navigate the intricate politics of their um, senior leadership or executive leadership teams. And that's so important. Yeah, it was interesting. We, we did some research when we were setting up the MyHR Future Academy and we asked HR professionals what they most wanted to learn and with the hard skills like people analytics, workforce planning and came out, but so did softer skills such as consulting and influencing, as you said, the kind of whole political acumen and everything else and stakeholder management. Uh, but I think that, that perhaps what was missing from what HR professionals themselves said was the business acumen, because I still see that in a lot of HR professionals as a gap that needs that needs closing. I mean, how, you know, if, if how can, how can HR professionals get better business acumen? It, it depends a lot on, you know, um, one of the obvious uh, drivers or determinants of that is where they come from, you know. And I think uh, uh, we still, even though the perception of the profession has changed and improved a lot, again, since Silicon Valley sort of rebranded the field as people analytics or talent analytics, um, you know, it starts with an image change and then that drives real changes in the type or profile of person who goes into HR, but there's still too many people who have ended there coming through administrative uh, functions uh, or um, sort of a bureaucratic procurement legal functions. And if you think about it, most HR professionals still don't know much about talent management, sort of the philosophical aspects of HR, which is what is potential? What is leadership? What is talent? What do we mean by engagement? How do you increase these facts? So, you know, the kind of organizational psychology side of things. Yeah. Now, we also need for HR professionals to understand 
uh, a little bit about technology. They don't need to be data scientists or AI specialists, but they need to understand how to leverage this and what happens when you inject this capability or this function into HR. And so the business, if you think you have the psychology part, the business part, and then the data and AI part, the role of an HR professional keeps on increasing and expanding, basically. It has a wider breadth than it had before. And so I think that's exciting because it means that it's a more appealing role for somebody who is more curious and interested in different things and uh, who, uh, in a way, can simultaneously be more of a generalist, but also it's a more intellectual role today than it was 50 years ago. And as you said, it's that kind of blend of science HR and, and business, really, if you can bring those three things together, then, you know, as you said, hopefully the function will, the function should have more impact um, in the future, which leads us on to people analytics. We always talk about people analytics when we, uh, when we meet Thomas, and, and um, we've already touched on it a little bit. I know you're as fascinated by it as I am. Um, you know, given the progression of the field and, and what's happening in the world, you know, what do you see as the long-term prospects for people analytics? I think it's very exciting. You know, it, the field is still growing very rapidly. If anything, now with the pandemic, it will accelerate that uh, area of uh, info in of innovation as well. It, it, you could almost see people analytics as digital transformation happening to HR in a way, because it's HR's attempt to become more evidence-based, more data-driven, to harness predictable insights and to really elevate its ability to understand and predict human behavior, you know? So I think this is leading to a really transformational improvement in the reputation that HR has internally and externally. And uh, there's still room for, for improvement, of course, and it's still work in progress. I think for a lot of big organizations that are growing their people analytics function, it's still a bunch of geeks in a basement, a windowless basement without, you know, access to real people and they're missing the business side of things, you know, uh, but that will change. And it's conceivable, I think, to imagine that people analytics will at some point become HR, that HR will continue to evolve in the direction of people analytics so that it, they become uh, non-distinguishable from each other, you know, because if HR is applying the science of people to improving organizational effectiveness, how else can that happen today, but uh, with a very, very rigorous evidence-based framework and the data to back that up? So I think it's really, really exciting. And uh, we're just in the beginnings of this revolution, but it's, uh, it's happening right now. And I think when we, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how people analytics could be integrated into, into other functions and fields, you know, that kind of fall under the HR umbrella. I think we talked about diversity, engagement, obviously talent acquisition, an area that you know well at, at Manpower as well, you know, and, and, you, and leading organizations, advanced organizations are starting to do that. And I guess they'll set the example for others to follow. Yeah, and so, and I think that, uh, yep, selection and recruitment is the obvious area where it started, right? Because really, you know, the science of uh, predicting work-related behavior started as a recruitment problem a hundred years ago or so, you know, in the military, and then it was exported to kind of civil jobs and professions. But you can see it now uh, transcending or 
being applied to every main vertical of HR. So I think people are talking about diversity analytics or DNI analytics, which is using data to model inclusion, exclusion, uh, whether a network is. Uh, um, you know, more or less diverse and uh, what happens to individuals, you know, that are different, are they excluded or not in an organization. Of course, learning and development and training as a whole area needs to find the data to show that there is transfer, ROI, etc. And then you can look at leadership development as kind of the last area because to some degree coaching started very much as a kind of a reward chat or counseling session that you get if you're doing well and if the company believes in you. But now that so much coaching happens virtually and remotely and that technology is scraping and mining the sessions between coaches and coaches, you can see a not so distant future where AI and machine learning is used to enhance even the coaching sessions and people analytics can inform you as to whether coaching is working or not, you know, which is, so, so I think, data at the service of uh, intelligent HR practices will be transformational. Yeah, and I guess with use, increased use of analytics and, and machine learning and AI, you know, how do we stay on the right side of creepy uh, and create transparency and trust? I know this is an area that you, you devote a lot, lot, of, lot of time on. Yeah, so, you know, and, and, and one of the things that is somewhat frustrating is the double standards that people have when they evaluate technology on one hand and people on the other. There is no question that some AI, machine learning or general technological kind of uh, advances or innovations at least seem creepy. You know, uh, if, I, if you told me that uh, uh, you're going to do something with the data that we're scraping from this session and then, you know, run some algorithms and then uh, report on my dark side, I will probably find it a little bit creepy and worry, right? Especially because I have so much to hide, at least my guilty pleasures, you know? And so, uh, but at the same time, uh, let's not forget that AI uh, is mostly uh, algorithms that are uh, designed to identify certain signals that predict something else. And they're basically software, it's computers. Computers don't have the ability to be creepy, to be sexist, to be racist. Not that that is an ability, but the propensity towards these um, kind of toxic or dark side behaviors can only be found in humans. To the degree that the humans that are deciding to deploy these new technologies are ethical, have integrity and are not creepy, we shouldn't worry too much about AI or technology being creepy, you know? Sure, it can be misused and you can make mistakes when you follow any sort of probability or any modeling and any statistical, you know, generalizations. But let's not forget that the bar is very low. We live in a world where, again, prejudice is ubiquitous, where nepotism and toxic politics are the dominant currency in most organizations and where the organizations, even when they're trying to be more meritocratic, more meritocratic and fair, um, they haven't managed quite to achieve that yet. So I think you know, technology is a tool that can be used to improve this and largely sanitizing or sterilizing the toxic politics that govern most organizational cultures is something that requires data and technology. Even today, if you think about it, most people are working virtually and remotely, this has decreased significantly the amount of toxic politics that you see. I mean, certainly we're gonna see less harassment because you're not in person. So sleazy managers might find it easier to control themselves. And also all the data are being monitored and recorded. So, you know, 
sometimes it's good that Big Brother is watching. Yeah, oh, it's funny on that. I think you highlighted a video to to Ian actually um, around productivity monitoring, if we can call it productivity monitoring. Um, well, a lot of some organisations are, according to that uh, CNBC report, actually employing this to actually check what screens and what sites that their employees are visiting during the day. I think I think you probably agree with me. This is not good um, use of uh, of technology, and and you know really breaks that kind of employee trust and uh, that, that you know is so hard to gain. Yeah, and so and Ian and I have just finished a Harvard Business Review piece on this subject, which will hopefully be out soon. Maybe it's already out by the time this is out. But uh, I think it's important to understand that there is a compromise, or um, you know. Uh, you have to find a balancing act or try to balance what you gain by using technologies that help you understand and monitor people's behavior. And sometimes that includes surveillance AI. Maybe it's a way to keep people healthy now and uh, ensure that they are, you know, you can monitor their engagement or well-being. But at the same time, what you might lose in terms of trust. Um, yeah. Jeffrey Pfeffer had a good article recently on how you know trust is going to be more important than ever because if if employees don't trust their culture and their leadership, even non-creepy and non-intrusive AI will backfire. I mean, they might even think that they're using things when they're not. You know, it's a little bit like if you're in a relationship and you don't trust your partner, they might not be cheating on you, but you would still divorce them or be unhappy because you don't trust them. You know, so trust is everything. And at the same time, leaders need to rise to the situation and, and, and have the responsibility not to mis misuse and, and waste that trust because it takes ages to, you know, um, to actually get that trust. So you have to ensure that. I think the point we're trying to make in the article with Ian as well is that you can deploy any technology in a transparent, non-intrusive way. You know, yeah. if I'm an, a, a typical employee and you're my boss and you're telling me that you're going to be using some machine learning algorithms or AI to monitor my keystrokes or the words that I say and that you're going to look after my data and keep it anonymous at the individual level, but use that data to understand what engages me, what improves my productivity and give me some feedback so that I can get better. I'll sign up for that. Why not? Yes. What's not? What's there not to like? Besides, you should be doing that as my human boss already, but maybe you're not. No, no, I think it's all about, as you said, it's, it's that transparency and, and thinking about the benefit for employees. It's almost that canteen test. Could I, could I talk to an employee in the canteen about what we're doing and why we're doing it and how it's going to benefit them? And if I can't, maybe I shouldn't do it. But um, we're going to talk about trust now. This is your last book. Um, I think when we were talking last week, um, we were talking about the importance of leadership, obviously. And your last book, which is for those of you that are just listening, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? has received a new level of attention, you know, and thanks to crisis. And I know it's something you've looked at as well. If we just look at politics, small data set, I know, it seems to me that highly competent and empathetic female leaders are trumping, and I think that's a bit of a pun in that particular word, trumping, some of their male counterparts at the moment. You know, what are your thoughts on this? And, you know, what does the, the data say, even if it's fairly limited at the moment around that? So, you know, in, 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 with my university colleagues, we used to always say uh, data tell, but stories sell. And, you know, and this is no different from that, right? So it is true on the one hand that countries led by women have suffered five or six times fewer deaths 
than countries led by men. And that, that gap, by the way, keeps widening. Um, on the other hand, it is also true that it's a small data set because fewer than 10% of countries in the world are female-led. And uh, in, in a recent article that I wrote with Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, we've highlighted also the uh, rational objections to drawing conclusions from this small sample, which is, you know, maybe those women emerged in these countries because they were already more evolved, more advanced, had a better educational system and a better health system. Maybe because the bar is so, um, maybe because it's, the standards are higher for women and there is this thing called the glass ceiling, already women who emerge as prime ministers or presidents need to be twice as qualified, etc. So all these arguments are fine. But the main point really is that in a normal or logical world, we shouldn't have needed a pandemic to understand that people are generally better off when their leaders are smart, decent, empathetic, and uh, humble. And yet, sadly, we did seem to have needed a pandemic to realize that. And every day we're waking up with new statistics that actually support that theory. So I'm really hoping that after this, um, you know, the reaction is not that, oh, you know, all countries need to be run by women or need, we should have female-led countries, but that we revise our flawed and outdated leadership archetypes and models so that we select leaders on the basis of their competence rather than confidence and on the basis of their humility, curiosity, empathy, uh, and coachability. You know, in politics, it seems like a, a, a stretch assignment to say the least. I mean, maybe it's unfeasible, but in organizations, some of these um, kind of outdated models still account for the pervasive selection of incompetent leaders, usually men. It's a lot harder for an incompetent woman to emerge as a leader. And that's fine, you know, so we shouldn't make it easier for incompetent women to become leaders. We should make it harder for incompetent men. Yeah, I think I, I think I could say any better than that. Um, so to recently to, to celebrate the first year of the podcast, um, Ian managed to persuade me to do an Ask Me Anything where I got to answer the questions posed by listeners. I much prefer being on this side of the table, I must admit. Uh, two of those questions came from Dave Orich. So I'm going to give you the chance to answer them because I'm sure you'll do a much better job than me. Um, first, what gives you the most confidence about the future role of HR in delivering value? Oh, um, what I have seen in the last five years, you know, the fact that the profession is quickly becoming more sophisticated, more data driven, there's more young, smart people going into it, not because they didn't know what else to do or they didn't have other options, but because they're excited by the field. And look, I mean, most of my students, master students at Columbia and at UCL end up in some HR function internally or externally. And they're really, really bright. And, you know, 10 years ago, they might have wanted to become uh, McKinsey or Deloitte consultants and do MBAs. And today they're really interested in talent, leadership, and actually improving how organizations manage their people. So I think there's a great talent pipeline. Uh, the field is becoming more data-driven, more sophisticated, uh, and I'm excited. And, you know, some of the changes are being accelerated with recent events. And what, what I mean, if you, I mean, so you work with a lot of companies, and you know, what, what companies and, and leaders, CHROs, chief people officers, are you seeing out there that are really setting an example for the field, um, because there is there are different breeds of chief people officer that I'm seeing. 
Yeah, so here, you know, the easy answer is a lot of the people you have on your show, because I think uh, we, when we curate or look for people who stand out, we have the same criteria, right? Which is people who uh, have the right competence, who are innovative, but without just chasing shiny new objects. And they are, they are, they are skeptical or even cynical enough to uh, follow the signs rather than fads or trends. Um, and, you know, when I'm asked this question, I like to talk about the companies and the CHROs or talent management heads that I have personally worked with, not because I'm advertising them or the work that I did with them, but because I have uh, first-hand knowledge of what they're doing. You know, so I think if you look at companies like PepsiCo, especially the work of Alan Church around leadership development, uh, Red Bull and the work of uh, Adam Yearsley, Spotify and Katarina Berg, who I know you've had on the on the podcast as well. Um, a lot of the times it's kind of a slightly old school companies, right? So I think newer tech firms are on the one hand very good at advertising what they're doing because they found a way to market their HR practices really well. So when Zappos says holacracy is everything and come here, be your own boss, it sounds great, you know, even, even if it's not true. Or Netflix when they disrupt and reinvent kind of talent management. Um, but also because these companies, you know, if you own search or social media or have a monopoly on any area, you probably don't need to be that great managing people. You know, so look at Amazon, for example. I mean, they're certainly hiring a lot of really smart people into their HR functions and very, very quickly driving science-based adoptions in their practices. But I think that's because they want to be around in 100 years' time, in 200 years' time. Now, today, they could mismanage their people and probably they'll be amazing for the next 10 years because of how strong they are, you know? So I think that's an important lesson because to judge whether somebody's doing their people stuff or people management well or not, uh, we need to look for a more sustainable and long-term kind of uh, uh, impact and success than last five or 10. I mean, some of the companies that are the most profitable or most successful, impressive, disruptive companies of today didn't exist 20 years ago. Mm. Will we talk about them like we talk about, you know, the GE culture or Coca-Cola culture or Boeing, Mers culture, IBMers in the future? You know, that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question, I think. Well, certainly something. Well, we'll invite you back on the show in 20 years, Thomas, if we're all, if we're all still going. Um, and then what, in terms of looking at the, looking at HR, what gives you the most concern? Well, you know, I think it still doesn't have a great reputation. The reputation is improving, but, uh, you know, we're still hearing people uh, having conversations about how to get a seat at the table. And if you're not on the table, you're on the menu and other kind mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, uh, cliche jokes that don't get old. Um, HR is still perceived by a lot of business leaders and executives as sort of kind of a, this quasi-Soviet bureaucratic engine that is... Uh, out to stop innovation and progress and, uh, you know, sort of a Marxist uh, union that looks after the people uh, at the detriment of growth and uh, entrepreneurialism. Um, and actually, there are still uh, too many people who think HR is the admin side of things, you know, doing rewards and comms and all the stuff that, you know, there's still consultants that do this, but that's the stuff that is being automated. Of course, there's also the old guard, like in any, any field. Again, in, in academia, we used to say science progresses one funeral at a time, or that in academia, you don't persuade your critics, you just wait for them to die. 
and you know, big organizations will have ex will experience this struggle right now between the old HR guard and the new kind yeah. of um, uh, new kind of um, cohort or the new generation. So I think what 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 makes me a little bit anxious and not so optimistic is that progress might still be slower than uh, we might want, and that if maybe if you invite me back in twenty years. Hopefully, we'll be alive and still, you know, relevant or have something to say. That things wouldn't have changed that much, really, you know. And ultimately, the I think the ultimate measure is: has HR helped make organizations more meritocratic, more talent-centric? Uh, are or have organizations truly made incredible advancements in their ability to win the war for talent? Yeah, and and that probably leads on quite nicely to the the next question. I think you probably touched on some of this already. So this is a question we're asking all the guests on the show in, in this series. You know, what can HR do to drive more value? Be closer to the business. Um, speak the language that leaders care about. For sure, be more data-driven. Persuade people with data, with evidence. I think prediction is an underutilized tool or weapon here because if you tell people, if you do this, engagement will go up and then productivity will go up and then that happens, they'll pay attention. Mm. Um, and then, you know, focus on nurturing and developing talent inside your function, not just outside your function. You know, so the biggest opportunity to develop talent in our organization is within HR. And I think evangelizing and persuading leaders to function more like talent management heads or HR directors themselves. There's so much really that HR can learn from, from marketing. Clearly there's a nuance between customers and employees but they are people and you know marketing is now in in pretty much every organization a data-driven function it brings data to the table it really understands and segments their customers there clearly is an opportunity to do that in HR with employees as well absolutely and I think that uh, it, it's extraordinary how in the last five or ten years marketing has almost co-opted HR uh, as a marketing story or has utilizes like you know and it, which makes perfect sense because I think most companies would do rather well if they could hire the most uh, faithful or loyal customers, you know. Uh, and actually, the best company cultures are the ones where you can see almost perfect congruency between or congruence or alignment between what you read uh, on the website in terms of what the company, company culture is, how the brand is perceived, and how employees perceive the culture there, you know. So I think there has been a huge synergy enabled by data and technology between marketing and HR. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this will continue, particularly if most companies are trying to provide employees with a consumer-like experience, then they need to think like marketeers. Hmm. And of course, if marketeers are interested in understanding their customers, they need to think like HR people because they need to understand their personality, their values, their interests, and their dispositions. Yeah. Definitely can learn from each other there. So, so before we wrap up, what's next for you? Because I believe um, you've got a new book on AI and the human interface. What can what can you share about share about this? When's it coming out? Yeah, so it's a, it's a book idea rather than a book. And uh, <laughs> I think you know uh, we don't have a release date, but it is with the Harvard Business Review and it's under contract. And yeah, I mean, I think probably the area that has interested me the most in the, in the last three or four years is the interface between AI 
or artificial and human intelligence, you know? And I think there's this misconception or at least this perception that um, technology and AI is necessarily going to dehumanize the work environment and workplaces and work cultures. And it's really important that we avoid this from happening, right? That we actually, in a way, even if you think about people analytics and HR, we're almost seeing a return to Taylorism or Fordism now uh, from where the field started a hundred years ago when it was scientific management, yeah. it, turbocharged by latest technology, AI and machine learning, but it would only work if we make it more humane. You know, so so I'm trying to really provide an overview of hopefully how we will be remembered in 50 or 500 years time when people look back at 2020 and say, oh, that was the beginning of the AI age. What were humans doing? How were, were they changing? And uh, how did they interact or did they change their interactions with work? If you think that we can think about, you know, civilization is work in progress. So we can think about people uh, in, in, throughout the Renaissance in ancient Greece, Rome, medieval times, what are humans like in the AI age and how are we going to ensure that we improve or continue to evolve as a species in this exciting but also daunting era of technology? Well, it's certainly something to look forward to. And, you know, and I personally believe that if it, hopefully AI can actually make us more human, certainly at work, because it can take away some of those routine, boring tasks away and now us to be more creative. But hey, I'm, I'm a glass half full type of guy. So uh, probably because hopefully, I mean, what I can assure you, David, is that the, the book will be out in time for it to be read by humans rather than algorithms. So it's written for a human audience, not for an AI audience. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely very pleased about that. Um, so last thing, thank you for being a guest on the show. I, I can't believe we, you know, we've finished the conversation, but please can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you and, and follow you on social media and read, read the great articles that you're putting out there? Yeah, sure. So I think that the simplest way is if they go to my website. It's rather old-fashioned to give a URL for a website, but that's still where they can find you know, a relatively up-to-date summary of uh, my activities and writing. So it's drthomas.com, D-R toms.com and otherwise on twitter at dr tcp um so drtcp and uh, pleasure to be on your show babe i'm conflicted because i always listen to your podcasts but i never listen to the ones that i partake in so i don't know which which side will win whether my affinity for your podcast or you know my tendency to avoid listening to myself Funny, you, you're the same as me. I, I've not, li I've listened to every episode of this show except the one where I was then asked the questions. Because yeah, it's uh, I, I'm I'm certain I can think of you political leaders that might listen to their own podcast, but maybe me and you aren't quite like the that. thing in politics. The reverse is usually true. Politicians only listen to themselves. Yeah, <laughs> Thomas, thanks very much. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it you can subscribe by your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app. Share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the MyHR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the MyHR Future website. 
That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in again in two weeks when the next episode of our summer special podcast will be available. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.